Whether we be sober, it is for your good, your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then that means all were dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but live unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, henceforth, we know him no more. Therefore, if any man, listen to this church, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God. This is all because of God who has reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ and has given unto us this ministry of reconciliation to it or in order that that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And and now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, this moment, this time in our church, we ask that you will help us to see Jesus. We ask that you will help us to behold how worthy you are of our praise. You are strong, you are high, you are wonderful, and you've saved us, you've redeemed us, you've restored us, and today we pray that you will reveal to us how glorious you are. I pray that as we sit here and as we open up your word, that your spirit will move in all of our hearts, that every person in this room would know that you're real, that you're alive, that you've conquered all that needs to be conquered, and you're sitting. Everything is done. And so, God, I pray that today as we open your word, that your word will speak life into us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. And I'll encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. I want you to join me in that text uh, in just a few moments. I love worshiping the Lord. Amen? I love singing. I love being able to celebrate God. Um, especially love doing it here um, with you all. If you're a guest with us today, allow me to go ahead and say, um, I am Pastor Joe. Pastor Tony, as Pastor Dave just mentioned, is actually out of town. Uh, he's on family vacation. Dave called Michigan the armpit of the world, but I've come to realize that Alabama is the armpit of the world. Uh, I'm just, just coming beyond. That's I'm just kidding. That's where Pastor's from. So anyway, no, he, uh, good things come out of Alabama. Uh, but Florida in particular is, I would say it's the hottest place of the world where I'm from. Um, but anyway... Uh, I'm glad you're here. Please come back next Sunday, uh, Sunday morning, worship service. You can hear our lead pastor preach. That's a great preacher. He's a good friend, a good leader, uh, and a great, uh, great pastor. So be here for that. And uh, I'm going to ask, just real quick, uh, does anybody in here enjoy riding bikes? Anybody like to ride bikes? All right. Raise your hand. All right. Got a lot of bike riders in here. All right. Now, are you the kind of bike rider that likes to wear spandex when you ride bikes? Just curious. I mean, I mean 
Anybody like that? Like you're, you go to Starbucks. One time I was in Starbucks and I, I just, I don't know, I was getting coffee in the morning and uh, we were having a staff meeting and this guy walks in with spandex on. He just got done riding his bike. I instantly lost all appetite for my coffee. Uh, it was just over, gone. He's out the door. Um, so if you are a bike rider, I encourage you not to wear your spandex. Uh, that helps everybody around here. So, all right, I'm going to ask if, if anybody's in here and they, uh, they like to ride bikes, would you be willing to come help me illustrate something? Anybody want to help me illustrate anything? How many of you guys are brave? Anybody brave to do this? All right, nobody's going to do it. It's okay. I got a strong... Oh, Jerry. Come on up here, Jerry. All right. Okay, here's, here's what we got. Jerry is a strong, fit, young guy, so uh, I'll have to have you take the kickstand off. All right, let me explain why he's doing that. I'm teaching my son how to ride a bike right now. Not this bike. He's a, he's a three-year-old. Um, I have a bike. He's got a little small little bike, and it's got the training wheels on it. And uh, anyway, so I'm trying to teach him how to ride, but right now I'm on stage one, trying to teach him how to keep his balance on the bike. And uh, so I want to see if you can help me. I got your strong guy. You work outside for a living. I mean, you, you fix people's water problems. So anyway, um, I'm going to have you kind of help me illustrate this. I am going to ask you to, to use all your muscular strength, all your, your fitness ability, all right, all of your, you know, all of your manliness, okay? Uh, and I'm going to hold this up. Go ahead and put your both feet on the pedals, all right? Listen to me. We're gonna try, this is a balancing exercise, all right? All right. Listen to this. Now, he's on a, he's on a bike. He's kind of heavy. Gee, Jerry. Okay. Now... In about three seconds, I'm going to let this thing go, all right? And I want to see, I want to see you hold on to this balance and see if you can keep this bike upright for like five seconds. Maybe, maybe, how many of you guys think you can do it for five seconds? Anybody think you can do it for five seconds? All right, he's kind of struggling here right now, and I'm holding him. All right, but we're going to try. All right, you got good balance. Come on, you can do this. And five, I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to see how long you can do this, all right? This is, this is not a game. This is a real exercise. You ready? All right, on three. One, two, three. All right, Okay. That was two seconds. I got maybe one second, not even a, half a second, he said. All right, now, let me ask you, why in the world was he not able to keep that bike standing straight up? All right, it's got, it's no mo- there's no movement. That's exactly right. A bike is designed to move forward. What, did you just fall? Did you just fall? Oh, my, two seconds. Keep trying. You won't get it. All right. So bikes are designed. They are created and crafted and developed so that they can have forward motion. Now, now church, let me say this. As a Christian, our lives are created in the same way. When we got saved, God saved us so we could be in motion, accomplishing his plans and his purpose for our life. We did not get saved by Jesus Christ to attend church. We got saved to be the church. You guys tracking with me? Okay. All right. So with that said, you're designed for forward motion. Now, here's a cool thing. Go ahead and get back on the bike. Take the kickstand off. And I want you to give us just a slow, steady motion forward. And I want you to see, obviously, what's going to happen is it's going to be a lot easier for him. Don't go too fast, but I want you to not knock over the guitar or anything. All right. Well, you need some help, bro. Okay. All right. Don't hit the wall. All right. All right. Okay. You can stop. You can stop. You're going to hurt somebody up here. But anyway, hurt himself up here. All right. So. All right, Jerry. Now, here's the point. Forward motion makes it easier to keep the bike upright. Would you agree with that? All right, so that's stage number one. All right, Jerry, you can, you can, if you don't mind, can you take the bike off the side? Thank you for your help. Give him a round of applause. Appreciate his assistance. Needed to work on his balance a little bit. Um, but the point is still the same. We are created much like that bike. We're created for forward motion to be doing what God called us to do. We've got to discover what God's purpose is for our life. And I'm going to give it to you right off the bat. Here's what it is. God has called us and created us to move and engage in his mission of rescuing lost people. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're created to do. All right? So I need you to understand that overarching theme is we're going to be talking a lot about today is that we need to be in motion. By the way, 
Let me say this. I'm not teaching my son how to ride a bike so he can keep his balance. That's not the motive. That's not my ultimate aim in trying to teach my son Landon how to ride a bike. My ultimate aim in teaching him how to ride a bike is so that he can enjoy the ride. That's why I'm doing it. And by the way, if you're a Christian here, perhaps you've been your whole life as a Christian trying so hard to overcome that sin so you won't fall. You don't want to fall. You're tired of falling. I keep struggling. I keep doing this. And you discipline yourself to try to overcome that sin. Listen, the only way you're going to sin less in your life is not by becoming more disciplined or working harder or putting more, more spiritual tactic in. It has nothing to do with that. It's when you understand that the, the greatest source of joy, the fullest purpose of your existence is to enjoy God. The reason why you got saved is to enjoy him more fully. Like the bike, I'm teaching my son. I'm not teaching him to keep his balance. I'm teaching him to enjoy the ride. You guys still track with me? All right, so with that said, I want you to understand that ought to cause us to want to engage in God's mission. I want to know what God saved me for. How do I do, how do, I do that? How do I engage in God's mission for my life, which is rescuing lost people? And so let me, Paul really writes this whole uh, discourse here, this whole section in the scriptures to explain the reasons why we ought to be engaging in the mission. But before I go any further, I want to address, there's two different types of people in this room right now. There's a believer who's been saved, you've, been, you've experienced Christ, you know the life-changing power of Jesus, but I also realize, and I'm very glad you're here, I know that there's unbelievers in this room as well. Let me speak to you if you're an unbeliever, you know, you're still kind of skeptical of this whole Jesus thing, maybe you don't really, you know, uh, following Jesus is kind of, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. Listen, I, I, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I am not going to try to persuade you by persuasive arguments that you need to follow Jesus. My goal is this morning, this is my only prayer, is that you would look around, you would understand that everybody in this room is broken. We're all busted up people. Everyone in here, we're all, we're all messed up. But there's only one difference between a believer and a non-believer. And it's that we who have trusted Christ have experienced a restoration that can only be explained by the power of God. He took our brokenness and he fixed it. And he put it all back together and he made it better than what it was when we first were born. Y'all, y'all, I mean, if you're a believer, say amen. All right. So now, if you're, if, you're, if you're confused about this whole thing, if you're not a believer, I, I want you to just, my, my prayer is that your eyes will be able to see that Jesus is all that you need. That's it. I want you to see that today. So I'm very glad you're here. And if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, start reading. I'm going to read that verse 13 again to you to kind of get things rolling. Paul uh, makes the statement. He said, he said, for whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is to your cause. What Paul is saying here is, apparently he had some critics. Everybody's got critics in their life. You ever notice that? As for the young people, you might know this one. I'll let all the haters hate, 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 all right? But anyway, so the bottom line is everybody's got critics. So, and Paul had critics in the Bible, he had critics, people down his throat and saying that this guy is a lunatic. He's, he's laying his life down for weird people that nobody, he doesn't even know these people. And he's living crazy, crazy reckless life um, for the glory of Jesus, who is this Jesus. And so Paul says, let me, let me explain something to you. I'm not the one who's insane here. God is insane here. Let me explain to you who Jesus really is. And so he walks through the next couple of verses and he explains something amazing about the insanity of God. Uh, first of all, he says this, um, the love of Christ constrains us. 
Now, he's saying, this is why you think I'm crazy. You think I'm nuts? You think I'm willing to do crazy things for God? Well, here's why. Because the love of Jesus Christ constrains me, meaning that it, it, his love is so heavy on my heart, it's pressing upon me that the only thing I can do is explode with passion and fervency for Jesus Christ who's changed my life. That's what he's saying. He's saying, that, that's, that's why you think I'm crazy. But further than that, and here's the reason why this is even affecting me. He says, for we thus judge. He said, we come to this reality. This is the reality. He says, we have realized that if one, if Jesus died for all, then that means everyone is dead. Now, I need you to understand this. If you've got a pen, you like to highlight things in your Bible, underline that word dead. It's a very important phrase. We'll come back to that. But he says, he says that every one of us is dead. He's referring to a spiritual death here. Obviously, we're not dead. We are alive. We're very much here in this room, all right? But he say, he's speaking about a different dimension here. He's saying that everyone in this world, they're born spiritually dead. Referencing back in the Garden of Eden. How many of you guys remember? This is crazy. In the back, in the, when God first created the world, remember what the Bible says? It says, God created everything, and it was good. He created the trees, and behold, it was good. He created the sky and light. Behold, it was good. It's just beautiful, pulsating cadence. God created, it was good. God did this, it was good. It was like this perfect harmony. It's, a sim- it's like a symphony. You ever been to a symphony before? Anybody ever been to a symphony? I, was, I told the college students this last week. I took my wife on a date when we were in college. I, I, am, I am from the hood, okay? I grew up in a, th- a thug life. You, you know, it's a long story. Um, but I, I tried to actually romance my girlfriend while I was trying to date her. And I said, hey, you know, I, I hear that there's a downtown Jacksonville symphony going on. And let me, uh, I'm trying to act like I know what I'm talking about. I'm real culturally relevant, you know? So I get down there. I go to this thing. And, and I mean, everyone's dressed up in like tuxedos and I mean, I'm walking in with, like, just a regular khaki pants. I look like a, an oddball, but I tried to fit in, try to woo her, you know, uh, with my cultural ability. And so, anyway, we go to this thing. And it was a, if you've ever been to a symphony, there's hundreds of people playing instruments, hundreds of people, and they're all in sync. There's this beautiful harmony. And that's kind of the idea that we're trying to understand here. When God created everything, Paul is reminding us that it was perfect. The Hebrews had a word for that. It's called shalom. It means perfect peace. I mean, everything is in, in perfect sync. Everything is whole. Everything is harmonious, symphonic, all right? So it's, it's really a, a neat word picture there. So here's what happened. I mean, by the way, y'all understand, they were running around butt naked. I mean, they were. They were running around naked. You can't get more, you know, I mean, there's just, there's, everything was perfect, all right? I'm not saying you need to go run around naked or anything. I'm just saying, back in the Garden of Eden, that's what they were doing. It's perfect, harmony. Now, in, in chapter 3, unbelievable things changed. I mean, everything just radically became different. Y'all, you might be familiar with the story. The Adam and Eve, they, they were told not to eat of this particular fruit. They can have any tree in the Garden of Eden, but you can't have this one tree. Some people come to me and say, man, God's heavy-handed. God's got those Ten Commandments, and you, 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 if you don't follow those Ten Commandments, it just seems like God's trying to pressure me, and he's trying to fit me into a box. God says you can have any tree in this garden, hundreds of trees. Just don't have one. That's not heavy-handed. It's just, it's, it's, the point is, God says don't do it, and they did it. They went to that tree, and they, they bit the fruit, and guess what happened? At that very moment, outright rebellion was, was, was broadcast to everybody in that, in that well, everything in the, in, the, in the garden. Outright rebellion was declared against the, son of, against the living God. And at that very moment, everything fractured. All that shalom, all that perfect peace, all that symphony came screeching out of tune. 
Everything was changed. Everything was different. And now everything shattered. That shalom that was once there in the Garden of Eden now broke up to pieces, fractured. And everything, everything was induced with death. That means the trees are going to die. That means the grass is going to die. That means the animals are going to die. That means the creation of God is going to die because outright rebellion was declared against the living God. Sin did that. And from that moment on, we have been fractured. Every person on the face of the earth has a massive problem. We are born with this spiritual fractured shalom. But yet we still have a desire to have peace, don't we? I mean, think about it. Everybody in this room has ch- has, is chasing peace to some way or some, some form. Maybe perhaps you've tried to pursue peace and restore your shalom by, by pursuing money. You try to get more money thinking it's going to bring more peace and stability and restore that shalom that you used to have. Well, that your, at least your heart has no, it, has, it was created to enjoy. But the money doesn't bring it. Maybe you pursue restoration from the shalom by, by, by relationships. Maybe you go from boyfriend to boyfriend or go from marriage to marriage and thinking that that relationship is going to restore shalom, but it doesn't work. Maybe you pursue it in anything, drugs or, uh, or narcotics or, I mean, you name it. We all have it. We all in this room struggle. We all try to fix the broken shalom. Everybody does. You know, the Bible has a word for that. You know what it's called? Idolatry. Our spiritual separation from God, this spiritual death that we have, is, is we try to restore it by having idols in our life. And those idols are money, relationships. By the way, all the fellas in here, how many of you guys realize that wives make terrible gods? Be honest. How many ladies? Husbands make miserable gods. All right, amen. See, I got amen on that one. All right, so <laughs> this is the truth. Here's the thing. Husbands, wives, we're not created to be the God of, our, of the marriage. You're not, you're not created for that. And by the way, children, if some of you guys want to live your childhood you know, dreams through your own children, you know, that doesn't work. Right, guys, you, your children are not, they make horrible gods. They make miserable, they're, they're mooches, okay? Children are mooches. Oh, don't judge me, you're thinking the same thing. So the, the point is, The idea is we try to find ways to restore this brokenness, but nothing works other than Jesus. See, Jesus, according to this text, said, Paul says, you know, we were all dead, but Jesus steps in the scene and he restored the brokenness. When he came on the cross, he died. He endured that full wrath, the punishment, that separation. See, everything, you ever thought about this? Everything physically dies. And we think, oh, that's the punishment that he's talking about in the Garden of Eden. No, the physical death is an eventual outward manifestation of an inward problem. We're already dead inside, guys. We're already dead. They literally physically die too. Our bodies are going to catch up with the soul. But Jesus steps in and he endures the full wrath. The anger of God is poured upon him and he restores the broken shalom. And he makes it all back and he brings it back together. And it's only found in Jesus. He did that. He died. He endu- God took the wrath that is reserved for you and for me so that we could have restoration, shalom being restored. That's insanity. That's insanity. The one person we offended is the one person who's going to restore us. That doesn't even make sense. That's why I tell you, Paul is saying, I'm not the one that's insane here. Jesus is insane here. He's insanely in love with you. That's what he's saying. Now, let's keep going. Let's get into the actual 
uh, the whole point. Now, what happens is, Paul is saying that this reality, man, guys, listen, if you're a believer, this reality ought to send a surge of emotion, a surge of passion into your heart where you want to engage in God's rescue plan for the lost. You can't sit here and hear something that dramatic, something that moving, something that powerful, and not be affected by it. There ought to be an awakening in your heart when you realize that Jesus did this because he's insanely in love with you. You ought to engage this mission of sharing this good news with the world. The lost people at your work, lost people that are your neighbors, is what he's saying. So, with that mentioned, he lays out three reasons why we ought to engage in the rescuing of lost people. First one, read verse 15. He says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The first thing, the first reason why we ought to engage in God's rescue plan is because we are alive. When Jesus saved you, he breathed life into you, according to verse 15. He brought life. He brought that. It's the direct contrast of the, of the previous verse. You were dead. Well, Jesus rescues you, and he breathes life into you, and now you have been made alive. Alive. Spiritually alive. Now, the best picture I can think of in the Bible about how, that illustrates this perfectly. Now, in a physical way, what really the best way to illustrate this is think about Lazarus. How many of you guys are familiar with the story of Jesus' friend? Um, his name was Lazarus, and he died, all right? He actually died and was buried in a tomb, and uh, Jesus was traveling to come see him, and he had already passed away, and his sister runs out to meet him and says, Jesus, Jesus, don't go into the tomb. He's been dead for quite a, a long time now. He's beginning to stink. He's already been mummified. Just don't go into the tomb. And Jesus says, listen, God's about to show you something glorious about what he's doing in all of humanity. So he gets, gets up, get, Jesus comes to the tomb, and he says this, Lazarus, come forth. That's all he said. That's all he said. And next thing you know, here comes hobbling to the front entrance of the tomb, Lazarus. Hello, he's back. Lazarus is back. And so everybody's having a panic attack, thinking, what just happened? How was he alive? Here's what happened. Jesus reached down into the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And at that very moment, life came back. It's like when God, think back to the garden, God made man of the dust of the ground. He put all the dust and shaped him. And then what did he do? He breathed into him the breath of life. And the Bible says he became a living soul. Your soul comes to life when Jesus calls your name. Church, listen. Some of you guys understand this where I'm coming from. I was, I can personally tell you, if you're, if you're a non-believer in this room, Jesus Christ is alive because he's living inside of me. He's living, it sounds weird. It's like, what the world are you talking about? He's living inside of you. Listen, he is inside of every one of us who trust him. He breathes life into you. The breath of the living God is breathed into me. I am alive. I'm not dead anymore. I feel alive. There's nothing like this that I'm telling you I'm experiencing with Christ. There's nothing like it. And by the way, when you're engaging in God's mission for your life, there is nothing greater and there's no more happiness and there's no more fullness of joy than when you're engaging in God's rescue plan for humanity. There's nothing like it. So with, with that said, he says, he breathes life. He comes back to life. Now, notice verse 17. He makes this statement too. He says, therefore, since you are alive, if any man be in Christ, circle that phrase, in Christ, 
He is a new creature. We love this verse because it explains a little bit about what it means when he says we are alive in Christ. So lean into this. I want you to listen carefully to what he's saying here. He said, by, by that phrase, in Christ, he's referring to the inexhaustible significance. I mean, this is a dramatic change that occurs in a person's life when they experience the awakening of Jesus. What happens is you're given grace and means of living a new life. That dead soul that you are not able to have a relationship with the living God has now been fixed. You've been restored. Now you can have a relationship with your creator. Kind of like what they had in the Garden of Eden. They were walking with God in the coolness of the day. You can walk with God. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. But he says, you're in Christ and you've been given means to, uh, do, to experience and overcome anything in your life. Let me explain. When you're in Christ, you have been given grace and power to overcome any fear, any anxiety, listen to me, any depression, any pain, any bitterness, any lack of forgiveness. You have been given the means to overcome all of the sin and all the deadness that is in your soul. He's given you the means to accomplish it, given you the means to soar high above all of that. Now, let me explain to you this way. Let's say how many of you got, how many, nobody in this room can fly, correct? Like, like you, can, you don't have wings that are going to pop out of your back or anything, you're going to fly, okay, obviously. Nobody can do that. But let's say you, you had too much pizza last night, and you just had this vision, and you had a cool dream, and you came to me and said, Pastor Joe, I believe I can fly. I believe I can fly. <laughs> or, or Kelly in here. All right, so, all right. So let's say you come to me and say, I believe I can fly. I said, okay. Let's test this, all right? I'm going to see if it works. So we all say, okay, you go to the top of the roof. We're going to go out in the, all of us are going to go out in the parking lot, and we're going we're to see what happens. So what's going to happen? Let me tell you right now. You're not going to fly. You're going to fall, all right? You're going to fall, you're going to fall off the roof, and you're going to hit the ground, and it's going to be a lot more painful for you when you get on the ground than it will be for us as we're in the parking lot with you, all right? It's not going to be a happy experience. But you think you can fly. It's going to work. So here's the thing. Not going to happen. You're not going to be able to fly. But let's say... Let's say we put you inside of a 747 jet. Now you can fly 600 miles an hour at 40,000 feet in the air around the world. See, what happens is all of the limits you had when you were outside of that 747 jet that prohibited you from being able to fly are nullified because now you are in the jet. And now you can experience flying on a whole nother level that you can't even articulate half the time. It's just, wow. That's all you can say. Wow. Guys, that's exactly what happens when he's saying here that you are in Christ. God has put you. When you trust him, he didn't just restore shalom, which is awesome. He didn't just bring peace back into your life by trusting Christ. But he puts you in Jesus, which means now you can experience life like you've never known before. Now you can overcome the anger in your heart that you constantly have friction with. You can't forgive this person that molested you as a kid. You can't overcome some deep things that you're struggling with, you grew up with. Hear me and hear me well. When Jesus restored you, he makes you brand new and he gives you the strength and the grace so that you can overcome it. What's the point? Why are we need to overcome anything? Because you're going to need God's grace to overcome your fear, anger, and anxiety when you're trying to reach lost people. 
because lost people don't like you, all right? I mean, and I, I want not, that's not always true. I have a lot of lost friends. But what I'm saying is they don't really care about Jesus. They don't, they, here's the thing. They don't know they need Jesus. So what they, you have to understand, say, you will be, you'll be able to do things for lost people that you've never been able to do because you have been given the grace to do it. That's what it means to be in Christ. You still tracking me, church? All right, okay. Let's keep going. The, the second reason what Paul mentioned that why we ought to engage in God's rescue plan of reaching the lost is that we are peacemakers. We are peacemakers. See, where are you getting that? Drop down to verse 18. He makes this statement. He says, and all things are of God. That means God did all this. You didn't do anything to make this happen. God did it all. All right? And he says, and by the way, this is what he did. He reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ. And he has given unto us this ministry of reconciliation. A ministry of, underline that word ministry. I'm going to have you guys highlighting your whole Bible behind this, the Bible studies over here. All right? Underline that word ministry. See, when we, that word reconcile means to make peace with. It shows back to the Garden of Eden story. There's, there's a problem with God and man. Sin is in the way. Everything's fractured. There's no shalom until Jesus steps in the scene and he can restore it. But he says here that this is, he calls it the ministry of reconciliation, meaning that God has given us a ministry to bring peace to lost and broken people. That's what he's saying. That's our ministry. Now, when we think of ministry, this is the first thing we think of. You've got to be a minister. Isn't it true? And we think, oh, I've got to be a minister. I, I, have, I have to, I'm not a minister. I'm a terrible minister. I can't even overcome my anger. I, can't, I don't know how to minister to people. I, I have too many issues. Nobody wants me to minister Guys, if, if, that's, if you hold to that view, that you think that a pastor has to be, is the only one that can accomplish what he's saying, you're detracting what, from what Paul is saying. He's called everybody in the church to be ministers of, the rec, of reconciliation to the lost people. That's what we're called to. That's what we get to do. All right? So now how does this whole ministry thing work? What does it mean to be a minister? Simply means to serve. God wants us to serve hurting people. Now, go ahead, and, this is what I love about the Bible. The Bible always explains and clarifies itself. Paul mentioned something very similar to this in the previous chapter. I want you to turn there. Turn to chapter number four. And I want, you, I want to read you just a couple of verses here, verses five and six. But as you're turning, let me kind of explain. Paul explains that the reason why there are lost people, the reason why you were lost, and the reason why perhaps you're lost this morning and you have no restoration of shalom, you don't have peace in your heart, is because you have been blinded by the God of this world. He's blinded your mind. You don't realize that you need Jesus. Isn't it true? How many of you guys grew up outside of church? Raise your hand. All right, my brothers and sisters. All right, so here's the thing. I didn't grow up in a culture of church. All right, here's the problem. I didn't know I needed Jesus. No one, I didn't have a clue. I just did whatever other punk 16-year-olds did. All right, I just did that. That's why I grew up. So here's my problem. Because I didn't know Jesus, I was blind to it because the, the Bible says that the God of this world has blinded my eyes. So this is, the, this is the remedy that God uses here. This is how you fit into the picture, guys. Listen to this. Verse number five says, because of this, or for we preach not ourselves to you, but we preach Christ Jesus, who is the Lord, and ourselves to be your servants for Jesus' sake. That word servants is a direct connotation to the word minister in the next chapter. Now, he explains what he means. He's saying, I am, my purpose in living now is to live recklessly to be your servant because I have been given life. 
I'm a peacemaker now. And he says, I am going to be your servant in order to become a peacemaker. And then he explains another cool illustration. In verse 6, he, he draws us back to, again, creation. And he says, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts so that we can give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me unpack that, what he's saying here. He's basically explaining to us that when we got saved, we got saved out of the darkness, all right? Light happens, shines out of us. You are, like, when, you're, when you're lost, you don't know Christ, you don't, you don't really believe in Jesus, you're living in darkness. When Jesus says, Joe, come forth, light happens. I can see I need Jesus and I want him. And so I come hobbling to him, okay? I want you, Jesus, and then I'm given life. At that very moment, I'm given life. And so from what happens is, he says he gave us this light so that we can share and give light to the other lost and broken and hurting people in this city. I'm going to say something. I'm gonna, I've already said it once before and I've preached. I want to say it again intentionally. Do not run away from your coworkers who bring a beer to work. Do not run away from your coworkers who do things that are sinful. You are the light that they need in their life. They need to see you. They need to see Jesus in you. Say, how are they going to see Jesus in you if you're not around? Oh, I'm just going to be a a secret agent Christian. This is even where you get that from. You read your Bible? The Bible's very clear. You have to be where darkness is, and don't be stupid about it. Have a brother or a sister next to you. If you know you're weak and something, don't go finding some place where you're going to fall. Have a brother and sister, but be smart. Be light, is what he's saying. Now, with that mentioned, he goes a little bit further, and he says something else. And I want to emphasize to you. He says, let, let, we are called to give this light in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we do this by serving people. Now, that means that the best way to be a, a peacemaker with hurting and broken people, the best way, church, to point hurting, broken people to Jesus is to do things for them that don't make sense. Recklessly serve them irrationally. That's what Paul was being accused of for being insane. Because he was serving people who were broken that they had no way of repaying him. And they asked him often, why are you doing this for me? And he says, because Jesus can restore you. That's the point. So you say, well, I can't do that. I don't have the courage. I don't have the boldness to go serve people that I don't know. I don't know what to say. I'm afraid. I've got too much bitterness in my heart. Go back to point number one, church. You're inside of a 747 jet. You can do things that you've never been able to do before because you're in Christ. Are you understanding that? Because you're in Christ, you can be kind to people that you don't think you could be kind to. You can be loving to people that don't deserve love because Jesus, you're in him. That's a big deal. So you, there is no limits to what God can do with you, church, with us. Now, the last point that I'm gonna bring you to And this, to me, as I read this, it's the very last verse of chapter 5. And as I read it, and I'm thinking about all the chaos in this world. I'm thinking about all the chaos in my life. You have to be honest with yourself. Here's the thing. If you want to grow closer to Christ, you have to do exactly what you did when you got saved. Nothing. Sounds crazy. You don't work harder to get closer to Christ. You are already in Christ. I know it sounds strange. There ought to be a passion to read the more of the word of God, but you don't make yourself more godly, church. 
You don't make yourself more into Jesus, church. Jesus does that. He's in you. You're in him. And things are changing. But he says something in verse 21 that is, it clarifies, well, I should say it's a mystery. It doesn't clarify anything. It's the biggest mystery of God's insanity of all. And if you've tuned me out, I want to ask you to tune me back in because this is where everything changed. He explains in verse 21, For he has made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Two things are said in this verse that I want you to understand. Okay, First, the first thing is, the Bible says that Jesus became all of our sin. Think about this. I want you to think about your heart. Think about you. Maybe you're hiding something that nobody else knows what's in your heart. Everybody has idols. We need to be honest about that. You need to lay all your cards out on the table before the Lord and say, hey, listen, I am broken. I got issues. I've got sin. And I'm not good at living the Christian life. In fact, I'm messed up. I'm messed up. We're all broken. And here's the thing. He says that what you understand is Jesus became all of your sin. That means, didn't mean he became a sinner. He did, the Bible is very clear. He says Jesus didn't become a sinner when he died on the cross. He took on all of your sin. How many of you guys remember back in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying on his knees and the Bible says he was sweating with such intensity, it was like great drops of blood. And he was praying and begging God. What was his prayer? Do you remember? He said, if it be possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Church, what's the cup? What's he talking about? He's talking about the sin of all of humanity. All, all of your and my sin. He's talking about our past sin, our anger, our jealousy, our frustration, our pain, all of it. He's drinking all of it for you. And the Bible says he endured all of it. Remember when he's on the cross and he screamed out, Father, he says, he says, I thirst. What's he thirsty for? He says, God, I'm willing to drink it. I'm ready. I'm dying now. Let me experience the full wrath, the anger of God upon our rebellion. I'll take it. I'll take it all. And he's on the cross in absolute agony. And he screams out one more time. Right before he dies, he screams out, Tetelestai, in the Arabic tongue. You know what that means? It is finished. What's finished, guys? What is it that's finished? What's he talking about? He's saying our sin is finished. Our shame is finished. Our old self is finished. Everything that used to define you is finished. He's on the cross, and you are no more guilty before God. It's been restored, church. Are you understanding that? Because that's a powerful truth. That's insanity. He drank all of your past, your present, and your future sin so that now you can have shalom. Now you can be alive. Now you can be righteous. Now, that's not the craziest part of the verse. Because it also says that Jesus took on all of our sin, but in exchange, he gave you all of the righteousness of God. Now that's breathtaking. As if the first part wasn't breathtaking. Let me explain to you what this means. 
That means, how many understand, God is 100% perfect. Sinless, righteous is the word. Never done anything wrong. When he died on that cross, he took all of our sin, all of our old self, that gangster, womanizer, drug dealer, pusher, Joe Catronio is gone. He's dead. Who you see is not that Joe Catronio. I'm a different man because he died. But he says he, what makes me so different is he gave me all of the righteousness of God. Now what that means is I am no longer defined by my past. Church, I don't know where you're at. Lost person, I don't know where you're at. But I know one thing's for sure. You're rid- you're, you've got a lot of stuff in your life. You've got brokenness. And maybe that decision that you think that you made when you were five years ago, all right, you've never been able to forgive yourself because you think that you're not good enough to be what God wants you to be. Oh, God doesn't love me. He can't forgive me. I can't do this. All the can'ts and all the would-haves and all the should-haves are now gone. It's finished because you are made righteous. When God sees me, when God sees you and you're in Christ, he doesn't see the sin. He doesn't see the shame. He doesn't see the pain. He sees the righteousness of God. Imagine being just, close your eyes. Just, I'm going to challenge you to do this. Close your eyes. And I want you to picture God stepping off of the cross, coming to you, wrapping you with righteousness. Because that's exactly what he did. When God the Father looks down on you and he says to you, Joe, or whatever, he says, you are made the righteousness of God.